I'm Dale Denwalt. And I'm Nuria Martinez-Keel. You're listening to The Source. Thanks for joining us as we discuss the Oklahomans' most impactful stories with the reporters who wrote them. This week, just a handful of inspectors are responsible for monitoring more than 12,000 medical marijuana businesses in Oklahoma. That's more than all the Walmart, McDonald's, and Starbucks locations in the state combined. Some in the medical marijuana industry say there's not enough regulatory oversight to make sure dispensaries are selling safe products to consumers. Reporter Hogan Gore joins us this week. He has a story coming out this weekend about the surprising lack of accountability for an industry that's seeing explosive growth in our state. Hogan, how concerned are people in the medical marijuana business about contaminated products on the shelves and marijuana that's not as high quality as the packaging claims. Well, first I want to say thank you for having me on uh, your show this week. I appreciate that. And there is some concern. There's concern coming from all aspects and all sides of this industry right now. You've got it coming from the labs who interact with the growers, who the growers are interested in getting the highest amount of THC content. You have labs that test product differently. You have an oversight mechanism that is a little bit overwhelmed right now. And so with all those aspects of differences and testing methods, it is a plant that, you know, even if it's the same strain of marijuana, it's going to have different chemical makeup. So it's kind of hard just from the base level to really even test it. It's a difficult thing to do in and of itself. So throw in financial incentive, throw in all these numbers of businesses, throw in, you know, just just the youthfulness of this industry. Yes, there is concerns, and it comes from everyone from the grower to the dispensary to the lab to the people who are overseeing the industry. And it, it's just kind of going through some growing pains and, and trying to figure out what are the best practices for, for each of these levels of this industry. First, you have the growers who produce cannabis crops, and then they submit those crops for testing at labs to check the level of psychoactive chemicals and test for any contamination. But your story focuses on a lab called Nationwide Engineering and Testing that was accused of falsifying test results. Tell us what happened there. So what happened with Nationwide, and according to the OMMA and some some of, a lot of the court documents that were associated with an emergency hearing that they held in March. Uh, Nationwide is accused of, in December, during a visit from the OMMA, they're accused of having a lab that was rife with dirty dishes, just unkempt marijuana samples, samples that were tacked to the wall, samples that were kept in boxes, just really no way of... of of uh, preventing contamination of the samples they're supposed to be testing, um, not having the appropriate equipment to have reported the results that they did. So, for example, the OMMA alleges that for heavy metals testing, you have to have certain equipment. Well, this lab didn't have heavy metals testing equipment, according to the OMMA. But somehow, some way, they were still passing, giving test results for that. So that happens in December, and they give a stop work order. The fire department in Oklahoma City gives a stop work order. And over the next couple of months through to February of, of 2021, the lab continues to do testing. Now, the problem is 
and this is kind of why this story is about nationwide, but it's kind of also about the the mechanisms that can prevent and stop something from happening just aren't there. So, for example, the OMMA couldn't issue a cease and desist immediately. They couldn't revoke that license immediately. It had to go through the courts. It had to go through emergency hearing. It had to go through this whole process. So, in the meantime, you've got a stop work order from the fire department, but whenever Chris Agrawal, the owner of Nationwide Engineering and Testing, he says that within a day we made the compliance changes with the fire department, we got our new uh, fire extinguishers, we locked the doors that needed to be locked, we did all we were supposed to do, and then when the fire department doesn't come back for 90 days, what am I supposed to do? So he feels that he's in the right to continue to test because he is in compliance in his mind, and, and, and he has stated that case, and he's, he's made that very clear through the, this whole process. Is he's defended his lab testing. He's defended his ability to test. And, and it's hard to disagree with that because even, even with that, the process that's going on, it, his license is still active during that time until a judge takes it away. And that didn't happen until April. So you can see where he's coming from on that. But then at the same time, he, he was in violation of that stop work order by the fire department. So there's, it's a little bit complicated because it's got a few different layers to it. And it's just, it's an interesting situation that shows just how, just how youthful and, and, and how many kinks there still are to kind of be lined out in this process of how do you stop a quote unquote bad actors? How do you get in there and most efficiently police this industry? Well, it's kind of, it's kind of been as Lee Rhodes, the lab director at the OMA said, they've learned a lot from this nationwide experience. They've learned a lot through this and they're going to, they're trying to make changes and adjust how they, their play calling to, to adjust to these kind of things. Well, I just want to go back to the, um, you know, the allegations that they were conducting tests for which they had no equipment. Did, uh, is, is there an answer to, to the question of, uh, of, of what happened? Are those legitimate tests? And what did Nationwide have to say about uh, the allegations that they were conducting tests that they didn't have equipment for? Nationwide uh, maintains and, and states that they they stand by their process, that they were within compliance, that they did do proper testing, and that essentially the OMMA is out to get them in a sense, and they're, they have not violated the testing process. They said all 3,000 are wrong, huh? All 3,000 tests are wrong. Then I said, if they're wrong, then did somebody get sick? because we didn't find the heavy metals, we falsified it, we didn't find the mold, we falsified it. So somebody should have been hurt, right? Do you have any, any product recalled? No. And that's coming from Chris Agrawal, the, the owner of the, of the uh, lab. And so it's, it's, that's one aspect of it. So on the not having the equipment and the, if the tests were valid or not, they're saying that it's kind of two different answers here. One, they're saying that they did have the equipment to do the testing and that they did do the proper testing and that the results are valid 
And if the results aren't valid, they would like the OMMA or some regulatory body to show them why it's not, have some other test, uh, lab test to compare results to and, and prove to them that their results are inaccurate. And then at the reverse side of that is, I've also heard the argument that, well, if our equipment wasn't good or we didn't have the ability to test for those heavy metals, which is where this comes down to is the heavy metals testing and stuff like that, um, we would send it off to another lab to have it tested there. So if we couldn't do it in-house, we would send it somewhere else and then we'd have them test it. So it's kind of those two answers, but it's, 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 it's interesting to say, and it's kind of hard to tell because this has been going on for several months. It's, it's a little bit of, it's a little bit of a cat and mouse game because I've heard a lot of different answers on that, to be real honest with you. And yesterday, whenever I went to the lab, uh, Chris's lab, he showed me around, he showed me his equipment and he said that, you know, this is working equipment that we've had and we can do all of the testing here. So he's saying that we can do all of the testing. And during that time, they, they have never once said that they've not been in compliance. They are, they are sticking with that they are in compliance and they don't know why the OMMA or how the OMMA has the authority to come in and revoke their license without giving some further evidence or proof of malpractice as in the lab results being uh, faulty. So you have this lab that operated for months after receiving a stop work order from the fire department. How is that, how does that happen? I mean, who is supposed to hold these labs and these growers as well accountable to, to what they are and are not supposed to do? Well, I think that it comes back to kind of what you were saying in the open there, Nuria, is that Look at the number of businesses comparative to the number of people you have working as inspectors, working as, you know, working as these entities to come in and, and, and check things out. That's a good question. It really seems like from whenever you first get a complaint in December, the fire department comes the next day, and then in essence, nobody comes back and checks that from December until late January, very early February. Now, I did confirm from a source that would like to be off the record that they did come back and ask the police department to make sure and drive by and make sure that it looked like nobody was in there working or that there wasn't anyone going in and out. So they would have periodic checks of that nature. But from the OMMA itself, there's nobody going over there every other day or just a weekly checks or stuff like that. It's, it's pretty sporadic and it's really just kind of an honor system of, of just listen to the stop work order and just don't be working. But obviously, as we can see here, that's not the case. And yesterday, whenever I went and talked to Chris at his lab, he showed me through his log books of his test samples and he's got test samples that they were doing testing through April and through to May. And I'm sitting there looking at those records and I'm, I'm thinking, you know, Chris, is this, is this accurate from 2021 in May? You're doing testing in May of this year after the, after the stop work order and after the order from the judge? And he said, yes, they were doing testing that, that late in the game, after the judge's order even. And so I, I don't know who's going to come in there and just, 
they're not getting babysat. There's no one there to to make that every day, making sure it's just not there. I wanted to follow up on that real quick, Hogan, because you touched on this in your story um, and, and perhaps in some of your answers so far, that it's not just nationwide, that the follow-up checks or that the, the regular accountability is infrequent, even for businesses that haven't been accused of doing anything wrong. But at the same time, how do you know that they're not doing anything wrong? Because the, the, the follow-ups and the checking just isn't happening very often. Can, can you take us through that a little bit? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. And, you know, I don't want to sit here and, and say that Nationwide is the only business that's done anything that is in question here, because they're surely not. With the just pure number of people that are in this industry, thousands and thousands of businesses. So across that, I mean, there are people that, there are businesses that still haven't been checked for compliance by the OMMA that have had their license. I mean, they're just they're swamped right now. And I think Dale kind of has, has wrote a little bit about that as well. They're just, they just don't have the bodies. They just don't have the capability right now uh, to go out and run compliance checks on all these businesses. They're just outnumbered. They are outnumbered. And, you know, that is something that has been addressed and is something that they're trying to change. The OMA is trying to change. And that has to come from the legislature and there was a slew of bills earlier this year that are that were signed by the governor that are going to go into effect in November and that will increase the hiring and they're going to I think it's something like 70 new compliance officers or something right around that number uh, so they're going to hire about 70 people by December to come in and be able to do more inspections and, and do that so they're trying to hire more people they're trying to they're just trying to get a grasp on this industry right now and they need more bodies to go out and drive to these places and go and check them because i mean they're in control as you were saying earlier there's the grower they have to grow the crop then you've got the dispensary who sells that crop well before it gets there it has to go to a lab and before and before or after the lab it goes to somebody who processes into you know your brownies and your distillates and stuff like that. So you have every different, you know, side of this industry has to be checked and has to kind of go through this compliance. And there's just really not enough people to do that right now, comparative to just the pure number of businesses that there are. I'm glad you, you teed up Dale's previous coverage of that because I'm about to go ahead and ask a couple questions to my co-host here um, because this situation is a lot like a story Dale wrote a couple weeks ago about the state failing to stop black market and contaminated marijuana from flooding into Oklahoma. Dale, how is black market weed defined and why is it a concern? Basically, for all intents and purposes, marijuana is legal in Oklahoma, but the state has set up, um, and the voters of Oklahoma have set up a regulation that defines the way that you, uh, the, the way that you grow marijuana, the way that you transport it, um, and the way that you sell it. Um, black market weed is going to be anything that falls outside of those bounds. Uh, so, um, marijuana sold in Oklahoma has to be grown in Oklahoma. So black market weed could be stuff that's coming in from Texas, from California, any other state. Um, it also could be marijuana that's leaving the state. Uh, that's, that's also kind of a problem um, that marijuana being grown here um, sometimes can't be sold or is grown for the 
explicit purpose of sending to a state where it's still illegal. Um, and the reason why it's a concern is that right now, Oklahoma's cannabis industry has relatively few regulations on it. Um, and where even where there are regulations, it is nowhere near as stringent or as costly as other states. So essentially, it's pretty easy and cheap to start up um, a marijuana business here. And when you have few regulations, when you don't have enough people to inspect your farm, to inspect your processing facility or your testing lab, um, or people coming into the dispensary to, to you know, make sure that you're selling, you know, um, marijuana that was grown in Oklahoma, um, you run the risk of, of having bad stuff in your weed. Um, to, to grow this stuff, you put pesticides on it. Uh, you could have heavy metal in the soil or, or on pesticides you're, you're applying to it. Um, and, and so the worry is, is that someone is out there growing marijuana, not following the rules and not getting it tested right. And it's ending up inside patient bodies uh, when they either smoke it or ingest it or, or however they uh, consume the cannabis. And is there any effort to stop black market cannabis from entering the legalized medical marijuana industry? Oh, yeah, yeah. The The Oklahoma Bureau of Narcotics is um, spinning up a marijuana enforcement task force that um, should be fully funded in the next few months um, and fully staffed. The they're really trying to stop the uh, the illegal grows and the illegal transport of marijuana into and out of Oklahoma. Um, they see this problem and they're trying to fix it. Uh, Hogan mentioned some laws that are going onto the books on November 1st. Um, one of those would allow the OMMA to issue cease and desist orders. Exactly the, the problem that um, that they feel that they're running into with the nationwide situation um, where OMA really couldn't tell them to stop working. Um, and after November 1st, the OMA will have the ability to basically put, in, put a stop to operations if they feel that it's unsafe or violating whatever regulation. Um, and also with, with the hiring, you know, they're tripling their inspection workforce so that they'll be able to at least confirm um, that uh, and step foot on a business at least once a year, uh, if not more. And business owners, the the final point, the final big piece of this is that business owners will have to verify that they are actually in business. So you've got um, 8,600 grow licenses right now. Um, A lot of people are um, a lot of people in the ag industry are really worried about um, how much the uh, the marijuana farms are growing and how many there are. Uh, but we really don't know exactly how many businesses there are because no one's verifying that they're actually doing any business. So one of the new things uh, that will be required is for businesses to say, yes, I'm operating a business. Here's where I am. Come inspect me. So even the products that are 
grown legally, that pass inspection, sometimes aren't what they claim to be. Hogan, your story points out that there's kind of an incentive for growers to mislead customers on the levels of THC in their products. Give us a quick overview of what THC is and why growers might be untruthful about it. Well, THC is the cannabinoid that that results in the essentially results in being high, the high feeling, you know, what you see in Dazed and Confused and all that stuff comes from THC. So that's what separates marijuana from like CBD oils or Delta 9, like the THC is the psychoactive chemical that results in that that high feeling in your body and in your mind too. Um, So the deal is there, and I talked to a couple other labs outside of Nationwide and Nationwide confirmed this too. The biggest concern for growers that come in, one of the largest concerns I should say, is they want to see that percentage of THC be as high as possible. They want that number to be, you know, 25%, 30%, you know, 35%, which is not really scientifically possible. It's kind of not able to get that high potency level. So if you're seeing something that's up that high of a level, you should probably have a little bit of concern because you're not going to get 37% THC in a pre-roll joint. That's just inaccurate. Um, But they want it to be 20%, 20%, 25%, 25% THC because people that are consumers in in this market, that is kind of, it is a medical market. But it's so accessible that it's kind of also got the guise of a recreational market in a sense of people are THC hunting. People do use marijuana for their ailments, but people also just want to go and smoke a joint. And that's fine. And a draw to that is you want to get the most bang for your buck. And the most bang for your buck is a higher THC content. Well, that's got truth to it. And it's also got a little bit of untruth to it. The... The labs that work with the growers have to kind of explain to them, you can use your THC numbers and then also get a good terpene profile, which I I need to understand terpenes a little bit more, but that gives you some more of the health benefit. Like the terpenes are more of the health benefit and, you know, pain relief kind of thing. It doesn't have the, the psychoactive as much as THC does. But it's 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 good to work in 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 con and together with the uh, with THC. So if you combine those together, your THC numbers might be a little bit lower. But that twelve percent THC combined with the right terpene profile is going to get you where you want to go. And it's kind of a growing process and a kind of uh, learning curve for people who are smoking. That you know maybe this isn't the best strain of weed. Maybe I shouldn't be so concerned about what that percentage says. And, you know, it's really just going to come down to people are going to only smoke good weed. And once you smoke for long enough in an industry, you're going to know what's good and what's not. And people are going to realize that, you know, I don't have to have the highest level of THC percentage. That percentage is in and of itself kind of hard to calculate. Getting the potency numbers for your THC is not the easiest thing in the world to accurately depict. I mean, talking with Lee Rhodes, the lab director there at the OMMA, 
they've got, and I think this is changing and has changed recently to more strict standards, but there was a, there was a 20%, uh, essentially a 20% plus or minus uh, margin of error that you can get on that THC count and still have it be accurate. So, I mean, it's, it's, that's a huge in either direction. And so it, that alone should say that if the labs are having that much of a grace period of getting that number, is that number really that accurate? It's hard to tell. And that goes back to look at the flower itself, look at the plant itself. It goes back into exactly what Dale was talking about of, well, in this part of the crop, in this part of the soil, in this area of the field has got different nutrients, different levels, different this and that compared to the other side of the field. Or the wind over here is blowing pesticides from the farmer who lives next door to me and is blowing pesticides, just a little bit of this that they're spraying on their field, well, it's blowing over into mine. Just all those factors is going to have different results for the cannabis that already has different chemical makeup from plant to plant. It's already so different, even if it's the same strain. And that gets into something that is really, really important, which is the actual sample, the actual sample intake process. How do you determine what is a quote unquote representative sample of your crop? Do you go out and pick a plant or pick buds from this plant and then run over here to this side and pick from over there and try to get a fair representation? Do you harvest it all up have a big container and then just pick bud off the top of that container and then send it into a lab. The way that you collect your sample is going to affect the results you get in your lab results. And that's an area going back to people not wanting to have, not wanting to have low THC results, not wanting to get themselves in trouble. Maybe this Abigail, uh, Abigail Burkhart, the lab director at the high grade lab said that, you know, maybe, maybe some people are trying to avoid the little bit of mold that's in this area of your field. So you avoid that and you pick from somewhere else. So that sample intake process really is going to determine your sample. And if that sample is kind of null from the beginning, because you've picked and choose, and this one looks really good this bud looks awesome. This one looks terrible. I'm going to throw that in the river. You know, that's, you've got to understand that that's going to have a direct impact on what your THC results are, which is another area where people will kind of would try to maybe manipulate that a little bit. And right now, as it stands, the, the labs, the individual labs in the state are supposed to tell their clients how to collect the samples for them. But they don't go out and check that. They don't go out and watch them collect the samples. So it's kind of just completely an honor system. And I would say that that sample intake is the avenue that you're either going to get a good result, an accurate result, as accurate as they can, because you got to remember, this is a plant. This is a, absolutely a plant that is going to have differences. And you're trying to get the, you're trying to get the result of the average, in essence, the average of your sample from where across from where all you picked from. So they break it up in the lab, they combine that in the lab, then they test all that, grind it up, and they test it. 
So you're getting a, a, a representative sample from across the spectrum. Um, and so if you don't adhere to that and if you kind of ignore ignore that and just want to pick out the biggest buds or the ones that don't have mold and pesticides and then the ones that do have mold and pesticides, that's where you deal under the table and say to your friend who owns a dispensary, hey, here's some stuff that I can sell you. You know, that's kind of where that black market area kind of comes back into play. And they're... And that's what's so interesting about this is that it's such a big industry and there's so many players in it that there's different avenues, as kind of Dale was talking about. There's differences in what black market means because it's leaving the state. It's being sold within the state to different dispensaries for a lower price. It, it can be any number of these things. And so that's just something that this industry has to contend with. So it seems like uh, a lack of enforcement or the inability to enforce is the core issue here. Um, what's the Oklahoma Medical Marijuana Authority and others in state government, do they have any plans, maybe like for next legislative session or changes in the way OMMA does things uh, beyond the stuff we've already talked about? That is a great question, and that is going to be in my next story that you can come in and read in the source. i got to figure that one out. I've still got to learn that a little bit more. But one thing that I would add on to what you did talk about and a, a, a new change in effect. Right now, lab inspections only happen once a year. With this new rules and regulations, they're going to have the ability to go and expe- inspect twice a year, which is an addition, which does help. Um, but that is one thing that they wanted to have. Lee Rhodes said that they wanted to have the ability to go and, and confirm and check more than just once. And then obviously they can go, if they get a tip, kind of like what happened with Nationwide, if they get a tip that something is wrong, they can go and do an emergency check and stuff like that. But now they have that ability to go twice a year and do checks. They have the ability, as you were saying, have, have the cease and desist whenever there's emergency for, to public health kind of thing. Um, so those are the biggest things that are, that are really going to change here. Um, and moving forward in the future, I would surely expect to see more. I just don't know what that's going to look like right now. And I think that they'll, they'll probably put these new regulations into place, use them for a while, and then we'll have to come across this bridge again of, well, now we have this issue and we really realize that we're lacking in this, this part of our oversight. So I think that it's still a growing pain situation and that there will be stuff to come, but I'm not sure what that will be right now. All right, Hogan. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. I also wanted to give a big thank you to Paige Dillard, the head of all things digital and multimedia at The Oklahoman. Uh, you, you probably haven't heard her name or heard her voice on this podcast, but her fingerprints are all over the source. She's edited many, many an episode of this podcast and, and contributed to each and every one. So we just wanted to say a big thank you to Paige as she moves on to her next chapter. We, we wish you all the best. And to our listeners, thank you for joining us this week. This podcast is possible because of the Oklahomans' subscribers. We encourage you to subscribe if you can. You can read these stories and more every day in the Oklahoman and at oklahoman.com. Check back next Friday for a new episode.